My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I always love this time of year as the faithful remnant of Gainesville is still around uh, and the rest are, are out of town. So it's good to see you guys here uh, this morning. Uh, parents, if you have elementary school age kids and you would like to dismiss them to uh, Aletheia Jr., now is the time to do so. The teachers will be at the back uh, by those double doors uh, on my right uh, to take the kids off to um, their time. So I uh, hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to Jeremiah chapter 33. Uh, that's where we're going to be in our text uh, this morning as we begin our Advent series. And before we dive into the text this morning, I just want to take a few minutes to just kind of answer the question for you if this is your first time going through an Advent series or if you're unfamiliar with what this type, type time of year represents uh, for us, I, I want to answer the question of just what is Advent? Um, Advent is a season in the church calendar that is dedicated to focusing and preparing um, to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. It, it is a time where, where God's people gather in, in reverence and in preparation to celebrate the coming of Christ. And so the word Advent literally means arrival, and it signifies the start of an event or the arrival of a person. That's just what the word means in, in its basic definition. So, so an example of this, you know, if you're going to use it in, uh, in context, would be if I were to describe a, a period of time where there was a lot of change in in culture and in the world around us, we might say the advent of the internet signified a major change for human beings. That prior to the invention and then the rollout of the internet, life was very, very different. And now in 2022, because of the advent of the internet, our lives look very different. Some of you in this room have jobs today because of the advent of the internet. Some of us maybe wish there was no advent of the internet, depending on how you engage society and culture. But life was different before the arrival of the internet, and there was a shift and a change that occurred culturally. And so ultimately, as Christians, we celebrate Advent together as a church to celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Son of God who put on flesh and rescued humanity from their sins. And we, we use this word because we, we understand the significance of what occurred thousands of years ago in a little manger in a, in, a, in a stable in Bethlehem. That when this baby was born, there was a new ushering in of the kingdom of God and that it radically transformed the trajectory of human history. I would argue that there has been no human being born that has altered the course of human history the way Jesus Christ has. And obviously that is not even taking into account the theological significance and importance of what the incarnation brought to us, as David talked about even last week in his sermon. And so the question then becomes, if the church kind of universally for, for at this point, centuries upon centuries has been celebrating this season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas as Advent, how do we celebrate? 
And so here at Aletheia Church, we kind of celebrate in a number of different ways. The first one is through the proclamation of the Word of God. We do that every Sunday morning, but it looks a little differently during this season. Our sermons for the next four weeks will have a focus on the incarnation of Jesus and what that means to us. And there is a goal that we have this year during our Advent series that I'm going to share with you this morning just so that you know that there will be consistency over the next four weeks of what we're looking for. But what we hope to do is look at an Old Testament passage, and our goal will be to unveil the original meaning of the text. Our second goal will be to describe to you how Jesus fulfills that particular prophecy or Old Testament meaning. And then our third goal will be to have a modern application for the text. And so one of the ways the church celebrates Advent is that through the proclamation of the Word of God, they have a focus on the Advent of Christ or the coming or the arrival of Jesus and celebrating that through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Another thing we do is that we pray. My encouragement to you over the course of the next 30 days or so would be to spend time in meditation and reflection of what Jesus' arrival means for you personally and how you can respond to that through prayer and meditation with the Lord. And then lastly, I always encourage people this time of year, especially if you started a reading plan back in January and it failed by mid-March, is to do an Advent reading plan. Our family does this pretty much every year where we do something specific where we prepare ourselves for Christmas Day by studying a different passage each day together as a family and spending time. The Version Bible app will have lots of Advent plans for you to choose from if you're struggling to find that, but we'll also post some suggestions this week to our social media pages and in our group me just to help you out if that's something you want to do. But this season is a time for us in the midst of all the distractions that are going to be occurring over the next four weeks. Guys, I'm I'm not um, foolish enough to not know that there's going to be a lot going on. You're going to be traveling to visit family. Some of you guys are going to be working in sectors that will see an increase in work. Some of you guys are students, and you're going to have about five classes each with a professor who thinks they're your only class with things for you to do in the next several weeks. Uh, You're going to be visiting family, which can be stressful. I'm sure some of you already experienced that this past week. There's going to be the buying of presents and all the various things that come with the Christmas holiday, that there's a lot of distractions that can come with this time of year. Anniversaries of loss, maybe even celebrations of good things that happened around this time of year in the past, but there's a lot that goes on. And so Advent is designed as a season to reorient our hearts and our minds and our affections on the true meaning of this holiday. And that's the arrival of Jesus Christ and celebrating what he's done for us. So this morning, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 33. That's where our text is. And I want to give you a quick overview of Jeremiah, simply because I know some of you might not know the context of what was happening in this book. Jeremiah was a prophet who was writing to Israel, specifically the southern kingdoms of Judah and Jerusalem, to proclaim to them that God's coming judgment was upon them and that the upcoming exile to Babylon was finally at hand. And so Jeremiah had been preaching for 20 years before these sermons, 
poems and essays were arranged into the book of Jeremiah. So for some of you guys, if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah and you're reading and you're like, this seems like a repeat of something that I read a couple of chapters ago. Sometimes it is. What, what we have in Jeremiah is not meant to be a, a narrative in the sense that it's happening um, from chapter 1 to you know, chapter 33 to chapter 38, that it's happening in order. What we have in Jeremiah is a collection of Jeremiah's prophecies and poems and things he had written describing the coming judgment that was coming upon Israel. And what we can see in this uh, compiling of these essays and these prophecies and this preaching and these narratives are a series of accusations that God has leveled against Israel. Basically, what Jeremiah is saying to Israel is, hey, we have broken our covenant with God, specifically the Mosaic covenant. We have worshiped other gods and God is explaining to Israel that this breaking of the covenant is similar to the sin of adultery, that this idolatry has led them to an adulterous relationship with other gods and they have committed adultery against the God of the Bible who had delivered them from Egypt and had given them the promised land, the God of their fathers, of Abraham and Isaac. And so Jeremiah goes on to say that not only has Israel done this, but even their leaders are all corrupt. The priests, the prophets, and the kings can't be trusted because they are just as corrupt as the people of Israel. And what this has led to, and this is one of the things that you'll see that's a little bit maybe more specific to Jeremiah than maybe some of the other more prophetic books, is that Jeremiah talks about the rampant social injustice that was occurring inside of Israel because of their idolatry and wickedness and breaking of the covenant with God. People like widows and orphans and immigrants, instead of being cared for according to God's law, were instead being taken advantage of. That God's people were using them for economic gain and for wickedness. And God is now saying through the prophet Jeremiah, I am coming in judgment for you through Babylon. And Jeremiah is basically throughout this book still begging God's people to repent, even though right, God has told them there is nothing you can do at this point to prevent the coming judgment. That judgment is coming at this point. You can still repent and you should still repent, but that will not save you from Babylonian exile. Which brings us to this morning's text, because you may have heard me saying everything right there and be like, wow, Kevin, you painted a really negative and poor picture of the book of Jeremiah. And yet when our passage this morning was read to us, I did not get that same vibe from what was read to us. And so if you, if you listen to our scripture reading this morning, the background in this particular section of the book is kind of a break or a pause from the rest of the book of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah is writing chapters 30 through 33, there are some particular things that are going on in the southern kingdom of Israel at this time. They are in the 10th year of King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah was uh, uh, Josiah's son. 
he was a terrible king who had uh, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and it was now creating problems for Israel because Babel, the Babylonians had now completely encircled Jerusalem and were currently besieging the city. And they were starving them out as Jeremiah pins chapters 30 through 33. And Jeremiah during this season as a prophet is basically on house arrest inside of Jerusalem for prophesying negatively about Israel of the coming Babylonian invasion. So basically the way this had worked is that as a prophet, uh, Jeremiah had said, uh, God is angry with us. We have broken covenant with him. Judgment is coming. Be ready for it. And there were other prophets inside the nation of Israel at the time and the king of Israel who did not particularly care for this prophecy. So their way to deal with that was to simply put Jeremiah under house arrest. It was like, well, we don't like what you're saying, so we're going to place you under house arrest because that would make the coming uh, prophecy not come true, I guess, in their mind. And so as Jerusalem is surrounded, Jeremiah gives a series of prophetic words to Israel in chapters 30 through 33, which are commonly referred to as the book of consolation. And what I want you to, to know and understand about these chapters is Je Jeremiah is pretty depressing as a whole. Like if you read that book, there, I would not describe it as a book filled with hope. It is a book filled with accusations being leveled against Israel for the wickedness that they have done for generations and the impending judgment that is coming to them for that. But there's a brief glimpse in these four chapters of what God is going to ultimately do in the midst of that judgment. That God's goodness and God's being for his people is still a reality for Israel, even in the midst of impending judgment. And the first glimpse of that we are going to get is actually in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is gonna say this, starting in verse 31 of chapter 31. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So imagine, right, and think about this. When, when Jeremiah is writing and sharing these words with Israel, there's not much reason for hope for them. They're completely surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar's army. They're being starved out. They, they know it's only a matter of time before they're going to have to give in and that the city's going to be taken, specifically Jerusalem. And they've been crying out, looking for God to do something for them. They're, 
begging God to move because as Israel often does, once they find themselves in a situation where they can't rescue themselves or be rescued by others, they finally turn to God as their last resort. And Jeremiah is saying to them, as it appears God's not going to show up, and even as Jeremiah had prophesied previously that God was not going to show up and rescue them this time, he's also telling them that does not mean that God is done with you as a people. That God is going to institute a new covenant, not like the one that Israel had broken. He's going to place his law on the hearts of his people and that he will be their God, which brings us to our text that was read earlier this morning, which was another promise God had made to Israel. Let me read that for you again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah gives God's people a series of hope-filled promises from God himself. That God will still keep his promise to Israel to be their God and for, for them to be his people. That a righteous branch will spring up from David. And this is referring to the covenant promise that God had made to David that a never-ending kingdom would be through his line where his line would always have someone on the throne. And not just that this king would come from the line of David, but that this king would be a righteous king, a good king, something that Israel had very rarely experienced throughout their ex uh, existence and especially in the time of the kings. We see the promise that Judah would be saved and that Jerusalem would dwell securely, the opposite of what they were currently experiencing. And then Jeremiah shares this cool little note with us. If you look at verse 16, this could easily be overlooked to us who were not living during this time period and did not know anything about the kings that were leading Israel at this time. But he says, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. I said earlier that the king that was reigning during this time was King Zedekiah. And that term literally means the Lord is righteous. Zedekiah means the Lord is righteous. And what we know about Zedekiah is that he was ultimately a terrible king who led Israel into the final stages of judgment in Babylon. And the promise that we see here from Jeremiah is that this new king will be named Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord is our righteousness. Ultimately, this promise that is coming from Jeremiah is that God will be for Israel what all of these other kings could not be, and that is a good king, a righteous king. That Israel itself would not be righteous, but their king would be, and that they would submit to a righteous king. God is using Jeremiah 
to communicate an important message to Israel. He's giving them, in the midst of being surrounded by an enemy who's about to conquer them and take them into exile, he's giving them an invitation to embrace hope in the midst of suffering and pain. See, God's people had been the author of their own suffering and judgment. It was upon them, but they need not focus on that because God is promising to them that he will raise up a king and usher in a new covenant with Israel that will ultimately rescue them in a way that they have never experienced before. And you'll see in the time leading up to Jesus that faithful Israelites longed for God to rescue them after hearing Jeremiah's words. And they waited expectantly for God to deliver them, not for the world around them to deliver them. Followers of God embraced this invitation to hope in God, even in the midst of exile, that he would bring a righteous king who would rule with justice, fairness, integrity, peace, and ultimately, who would rescue them. Which brings us to the second focus of our time in the text this morning, which is how Jesus ultimately fulfills this promise that we see in Jeremiah. I want you to imagine for a moment the despair of the Israelites as they are surrounded on all sides. Knowing that in in reality, the Babylonians had, had previously conquered Israel and they were allowed to exist in their current iteration as long as their king did what the king of Babylon had said that they were supposed to do. And that the coming judgment that was coming from them was going to be far more severe and harsh this go-around because Zedekiah had violated what Nebuchadnezzar had told them to do. And as they sit there waiting the coming judgment and suffering and exile, Jeremiah is telling them, God will set all of this right one day. And ultimately, God did but not necessarily in the way that Israel was expecting. See, Israel expected a king like their previous ones, a king who would lead them to economic and military success and prosperity, a king that would allow them to dwell securely and not see them be the vassals of another kingdom, that would not see their culture destroyed by another kingdom. But God ultimately fulfilled this promise not through an Israelite king, through military conquest, but instead through the work and person of Jesus of Nazareth. And we, we need to ask ourselves the question as we read this, well, how does Jesus fulfill this promise fully? So let's, let's break down some of the text, and I want you to go with me to the New Testament as we look at some of this. So, so if we look at the, the first promise that God makes to Israel there in Jeremiah chapter 33, right? He says, the days are coming when I will fulfill my promise. So if, if you go over to Matthew chapter 4 with me, starting in verse 12, let's look at what Jesus says here. 
Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. This is referring to Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then I want you to look specifically at this verse. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see specifically that, that Matthew says that Jesus was modeling his ministry and doing ministry in such a way that the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. But we also see the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus claims he is ushering in with his ministry. And that same kingdom is the kingdom that Jeremiah is promising is going to be at hand in Jeremiah chapter 33 when he promises that a new king will usher in an era where God's people will follow him. And this kingdom that Jesus talks about here is better than any earthly kingdom because it holds far greater promises and expectations of what God is going to do. See, the problem for Israel, even in the time of Christ, is when they were looking for the Messiah, this person that is promised in Jeremiah 33, is they're looking for someone that's solely going to get rid of the Roman kingdom. And yet what God has promised to his people in the Old Testament is that once this Messiah, this anointed one, this king has come, the things that he is going to usher in are far better than earthly economic prosperity and success. And one of the reasons that the Israelites rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry is that he didn't usher in the, exp the expulsion of the Romans. And this is what they so desperately wanted. But Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the kingdom that God is ushering in is one that destroys Satan's dominion and rule, not just Roman dominion and rule and authority. And so as Jesus declares that his kingdom is being ushered in by the inauguration of his ministry, what he's saying is, I am the fulfillment of what Jeremiah had promised to you. Now, Jeremiah also said back in chapter 33 that, he will, that God will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Go with me to Revelation chapter 22 and look specifically at verse 16. This is Jesus speaking to the apostle John and look at what he says. I am. Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. These are Jesus' own words to the apostle John saying, post death and resurrection, I am the root that Jeremiah had promised to you. I am the seed of David that will lead an everlasting kingdom. I am the one that had been promised. And then lastly, the promise we saw in Jeremiah about the Messiah was this. 
and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. And this is probably what I consider to be the most important promise that Jeremiah makes here. And if we understand properly the ministry of Jesus, the most beautiful thing that he does. The promise of this king is, is twofold, that he will execute righteousness and that this king will execute justice. And so we might ask ourselves, how will this king do this? And we see this done through the finished work of Christ. Think about his life. Christ executed righteousness in the fact that he perfectly obeyed God's law and he perfectly followed the Father's will during his life on earth. He's the very thing that you and I cannot do. He's the very thing that the first Adam was supposed to be and was not. That he perfectly executed righteousness in his life. And you might say, well, if Jesus is not still technically on earth walking, ruling, and reigning, how can he be executing justice? And I would say that he did, and here's how he did so. Because God's justice must be executed towards sinful and rebellious humanity. And so some of us might conjure up images that this king is going to round up all of the wicked people and judge them and throw them in jail or give them whatever punishment they might receive. But if we understand God's law properly, the reality would be is that if this king were to truly step onto his throne and truly reign and execute justice, every single one of us would be arrested, put under trial, and found wanting. There would not be one of us that could be standing before the judgment seat of God's law and be declared not guilty. And yet it says that this king will execute justice. And this is the beauty of the gospel because in Christ, justice was executed. Jesus went to the cross in the place of sinners so that God's justice would be executed on our behalf. See, the beauty of the gospel is that justice and righteousness meet at the cross. Jesus takes the Father's justice upon himself and has it fully executed and then he gives us freely his righteousness before the Father. And the long-awaited promise of God through the prophet Jeremiah is fully realized at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Advent and Christmas are a season where we are called, we are called as followers of Jesus, his disciples, to pause and recognize that while many had waited for centuries for God to execute this judgment and righteousness, and they had hoped in that promise that God would one day do what he had promised to Israel, that we now live on the other side of that reality where we rejoice in the fact that it is finished.
that Jesus has fully accomplished what God had promised to his people. This is what we celebrate, guys. That when we talk about all this theological jargon (laughs) of God's righteousness and justice being executed, that it was fully done in Christ. And we celebrate that as God's people. And this season is meant to be a time where we as God's people slow down, pause, we reflect, and we remember what Christ has done for us. Which leads us to the third and final point that I want to make this morning, which is our modern application of what we see in Jeremiah 33. How how does this truth touch me today? How does this affect me today? I said earlier that Advent is a season where Traditionally, the church has been in a season of waiting and hopeful expectation. And that may seem odd in light of what we just looked at and seeing that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Why would we be in hopeful expectation if that promise has already been realized in the work of Christ? But what we do in this season is we both look back reflecting on the hope being realized in the incarnation and work of Christ. But we also look forward to the second coming of Jesus in hope-filled expectation. And one of the things I think we see if we study the Old Testament, and then I think if we were honest with ourselves about our own lives, waiting is not really fun. Amen? There's a reason why the microwave exists, right? Like, like, I've never been like, you know what I hope I get to do this year? Wait more often. Like, that, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to wait more frequently. And yet, in waiting, some of the most powerful things that God can do in our lives transpires. Allow me for a minute just to share a story with you about a season of waiting in my own life where the Lord taught me a lot. It was when I was waiting on a wife, waiting on Jackie. I first met Jackie on a mission trip to Panama City Beach, Florida in 2006. And um, for those of you guys that have ever done campus ministry, you'll realize that there's a lot going on in campus ministry. There's some people there that don't know God and are surrounded by people that do love Jesus, and hopefully the Lord will use that experience to reveal the gospel to them. There's others that are there that really, really love God and want to be on mission for Him and want to maximize their time together with other faithful brothers and sisters to share the gospel with others. And then there's what I always refer to as the third group, which were there to find a husband and a wife. And as a relatively new believer during this season of life, um, and kind of having grown up some in the church, but having met Jesus somewhere between my sophomore and junior years of college, and this trip was my junior year of college, I couldn't understand why people weren't as enthralled with Jesus as I was. I couldn't understand having experienced the life change that was going on in my life during that 12-month period, why people did not care about anything other than telling other people about Jesus. I tell people all the time, I led uh, a friend of my roommate to Christ about four days after I became a believer. And to this day, I still have no idea what I said to him. 
That, that guy was a faithful part of our church and was baptized. And I remember my pastor, even at the time, asking me, Kevin, what did you share with him? Like, what, what gospel presentation did you use? I'm like, what? I'm a new Christian. I have no idea, right? We just talked, right? Next thing I know, he asked Jesus to save him, right? I was on fire in that season of my life for the Lord. And so this particular group of people in our campus ministry kind of confounded me because I had come to Florida to share the gospel with people on the beach. And some of my roommates and fellow ministry workers on this trip did not share the same mission as me. And so one of the people I met during that week, though, was a lady by the name of Jackie Milam. And... I remember thinking to myself, this woman is actually here to share the gospel with people. She's amazing. And I even one night locked in my hotel room with my other roommates who were trying to keep from the other thirsty girls on the trip. Christian ladies, sorry. Guys can do it too. I'd said, what makes them think I would be attracted to them when they clearly are looking for us more than they're looking for Jesus. I hope to marry somebody like Jackie one day. Those are my direct words. Now, at the time, Jackie was dating one of my best friends, a good friend of mine. He was a relatively new believer as well. And so we went back to our, our campus, and I annoyed Jackie on a 12-hour bus ride back to Virginia. She had the misfortune of sitting behind me on the bus, and I can be a lot for 12 hours at a time. And so... Went away that summer and didn't think much of it. And then came back that fall from my senior year of college. And I started to getting to know her better and hanging around her in group settings. And I realized that I was really interested in her. And she didn't share that same feeling. As a matter of fact, even as I started being more intentional with her, she decided to become more interested in somebody else than me. And so I waited. And then we started dating. And within the first, I would say, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 days of dating, I knew I wanted to marry her. Now, I wasn't foolish enough, like some, to go ahead and tell her that right away. And Jackie did not share those same feelings. And so I waited. And then finally, after over a year of dating, popped the question, asked her to marry me. She said yes. And then guess what? I got to continue to wait. Every male's favorite time, the engagement period. Right? I always say that engagement time is, is tough on couples because usually by the time the man's ready to pop the question, he's ready to go to the courthouse that afternoon. And the lady often for the first time is ready to consider the possibility of marrying this man. And so you have two people who are on very, very different stages in the seriousness of the relationship. And so the engagement period, men, hear me on this, is the time where you wait for her to catch up. And eventually you will be ready to elope before the wedding day because planning a wedding is terrible. I digress. During that time, there was much waiting. And sometimes I handled it well, and sometimes I wasn't particularly happy about that waiting. But I will say that God taught me a lot during that waiting. You know, when I was in Florida and I was enthralled by just who I knew Jackie to be minimally at that time, and yet couldn't be with her, the Lord was teaching me that 
I needed to be more worried about him than a partner anyway. And that it was good for me to wait. As we began to get to know each other better and I wanted to start dating her seriously and she was not ready for that. The Lord taught me that if I wanted to marry her, one of the things I needed to learn was to be patient and to be more sensitive to wait for her heart to be in agreement with mine. As we became engaged and I was ready to live in the same house and do life together and share the same bed and I had to wait, the Lord taught me that I could exercise self-control and lead even without the perks of being married and display that to my future wife. As I look back on that season of waiting, as much as I disliked it, it was actually full of hope. It was full of hope that we would actually be together one day, that God would use us to do ministry together and build a family together and that it was worth the wait. Church, Advent is an invitation to have hope in the midst of waiting. You know, there's a lot of anxiousness, so to speak, around us culturally right now. I think probably every season and period of time has probably had this, but we're no different. There's political turmoil. There's economic unease. We're post-global pandemic, which is still affecting the way we live our lives. Not to mention on top of that, that all of us, because we're humans, experience family drama, personal strife, difficulty, heartache, loss, tragedy. And yet as God's people... We're not called to wait or try to solve the problems ourselves or bully our way to getting the results that we want, but we're called instead to wait in hopeful expectation because the second coming of Christ has been promised to us. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21 with me. That's where we're going to finish this morning. And I want you to notice the promise that God's word gives us. And we live on the side of this promise the same way that Israel lived on the side of the promise God gave to the prophet Jeremiah. Hopeful anticipation that God would do this. And in the same way that God had kept many of his promises to Israel in the past and that Israel could look back on those promises in the past as hope that God would keep this promise in the future for them and their people. We look back to the promises that God has kept for us and God's people in the past to a future hope and the promise that God gives us here in Revelation 21. Look at what he says. This is the Apostle John. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, this is a beautiful promise of hope that God has given to us in Christ. That we will dwell with God that tears will be wiped away, that we will see no more death, pain, or suffering. But for now, we wait. And we wait in hope because we serve a God who keeps his promises. And so how do we wait in hope? How can we practically do this? Three things for you. The first one is worship. One of the ways we are encouraged to wait and hope for God to do what he has promised is that we engage our hearts through preaching the gospel to ourselves or hearing hearing others preach the good news to us. We gather with God's people, we sing songs of praise, we pray, we study the Bible, and we simply worship God for who he is, for what he has done and what he promises he will do. The second way we can wait and hope this Advent season is be on mission. We tell others of the good news of Jesus. We serve others as Jesus has served us, and we forgive others as we have been forgiven in Christ. And then lastly, we know. We wait and hope through knowing. Knowing this hope isn't just for hope's sake. You know, one of the things that always kind of makes me laugh is examples of extreme hope, but false hope. Theo and Steven, I'm going to call you guys out here for just a second as my example. I remember back before the college football season this year, the four of us were sitting down uh, as the elders and talking about the upcoming football season. And Stephen and Theo both mentioned in passing that they couldn't wait for Anthony Richardson to win the Heisman this season. And at first I giggled because I was like, what would lead you to believe that that's a foregone conclusion that he's going to win the Heisman? And then Theo and Stephen began to declare all of their false hopes of this upcoming season. And by the way, hear, hear me on this. I think Anthony's played well for you guys. I'm pro-gators. I know that I'm often not. It's just that you guys are so delusional that my being rooted in reality comes off across as negativity. And so Stephen and Daniel, I mean, Stephen and Theo are going back and forth and explaining to me. And of course, the Auburn fan at the table is looking at me going, now their team has been truly terrible this season. There you go, Pastor Daniel. Right? There's all sorts of things, though, and this was an example of the way in which we become filled with hope and things that we aren't even sure are really going to deliver. 
right? The, the hope of another national championship that never comes. The hope of a Heisman that never comes. And yet, our hope in the promise in Revelation chapter 21 will really come. Because Jesus is really going to do this. Because he really did put on human flesh, live and execute righteousness that you and I could not execute and then executed the justice of the Father on our behalf and rose again. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty today ruling and reigning and he will one day return and do exactly what he promises he's going to do here in Revelation 21. And so church, this morning, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna practice waiting in hope right now by worshiping. We're gonna take communion together during this next worship song. Communion is where God's people worship God by remembering that Christ's flesh and blood was given for the forgiveness of sins. And so we ask that if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, that you not take communion because what we are partaking in is a remembrance and an act of worship for what Jesus Christ has done for us. But if you are a disciple and follower of Jesus here this morning, please feel free to come up and take the elements for communion. And I would ask only that you take a moment to pause and remember what Christ has done for you, to repent and ask forgiveness of any sin, and then in hopeful worship, partake in the bread and juice as an act of worship, thanking Christ for what he has secured for us. That your sins are forgiven and have been paid for. That the promise of Jeremiah has been brought to fruition through the work of Jesus Christ. And then we're gonna sing. I want you to stand and sing, be enthroned. Singing to Jesus, you are worthy, Lord of all, because he is worthy. He has come and he will come again. Let's wait and hope for that second coming.